Back to Luke. We're in chapter 3. We're moving into our second section in regards to the way that I'm lining it out anyway. We've got the divine endorsement here. Divine endorsement, chapter 3, 1 down through 4, 13. Um, now, chapter 1, verse 5, all the way up through 3, verse 1, cover around 30 years. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Uh, we get a historical marker here, chapter 3, verse uh, 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which is anywhere from um, mid-28 A.D. to sometime after 29 A.D. Tomorrow, I forgot it tonight, but tomorrow I'm going to bring a book that uh, I'm going to recommend to you that kind of give you, does some really good historical background on, um, on these, these times and dates in the life of, of Jesus and can really help you think through um, issues of dating and how old Jesus was and all those kinds of things, which would be, I think, helpful for you. But what I want us to notice now is let's, let's move in here to, um, there's, there's three sections within this section. The first has to do with uh, the forerunner, John the Baptist, uh, proclaiming the Son. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Then 321 down through 38, where the Father is going to affirm the Son um, through His baptism and then proof through the genealogy. And then finally chapter 4, 1 through 13, where the adversary, Satan, comes and he's going to tempt the Son. Uh, we're going to see him resist. So, all right, pick it up. Somebody, chapter three, verses uh, two and three. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, uh, Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came in all the district around the Jordan preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Very good. So notice here, John the Baptist has been out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, getting his John the, uh, getting his Elijah on, mm-hmm. and now he's called in. The Word of God comes to him, and he comes in from out in the wilderness where he's been faithful into the region around the Jordan, the Jordan River, and he's going to be calling people to come out from Israel and to repent. Notice here, He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is, um, John the Baptist is performing baptisms. There's a symbol of cleansing and identification. So water, a picture of cleansing. The water is not actually forgiving (coughs) the sins or washing away any sins. It's symbolic. Um, And um, John the Baptist is here and he is is calling people to, to repent uh, to turn away from their um, unrighteousness and to turn toward the coming Messiah and to prepare their hearts for Him. To, to, to turn away from sin and to, to be ready to receive the Messiah when He comes so that their sins may be, may be forgiven. Then he quotes here, um, Luke quotes verse uh, 4 down through 6 from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5. Somebody read this for us. This is about, Isaiah here is prophesying about what John the Baptist is doing. Okay? Verses 4 down through 6. Out loud. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. 
and all flesh shall see the salvation of, of God. Good. So what a forerunner would do before a king, was he would go before him, and he would cry out, the king is coming, the king is coming. And he would also oversee road construction. Hmm. Where basically, if there's big holes in the road, you'd fill them in. And if there were big bumpy things, you would level it out. That way the king's entry would be smooth. John the Baptist is playing the role of forerunner. He's ensuring that holes and bumps, sin, is removed through repentance and identification with him and the coming Messiah. And he's proclaiming, he is coming, he is coming. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. He's preparing the way so that people can see Jesus. Because if you see your sin and you are in your sin, you are veiled and blinded to see Jesus for who he is. But he's saying, lose that so that you can gain the Christ. Alright, now, verse 7. This is how John the Baptist plants a church. Okay, here you go, verse 7. Somebody read verse 7 for us. <laughs> John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. That's secret sensitive, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> John is not trying to start a circus. He's not trying to gather a crowd. He's not trying to keep a crowd. He's worried about one thing. And what's that? Sin. Oh, yeah, sin. Uh, yeah. He wants he wants holiness. He wants repentance from sin. He wants them to turn from their wickedness, and he's calling out uh, ulterior motives here. Now, somebody go ahead and read verses... Um, yeah, let's go ahead and read verses 10 through... No, even verses 9 down through 14. Somebody read that for us, 9 through 14. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. The good fruit here would be repentance of sin. Okay, keep going. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And, and he would answer and say to them, The man was two tunics is to share with him was none. And he was food is to do likewise. So you're to be generous if you have much. Keep going. And or even tax, if you just have enough, you should do it. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they and they said to him, "Teacher, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Collect no more than what you what you have been ordered to." Yeah. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, "And what about us? What shall we do?" And he said to them, "Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content." With your wages. Good. Something I think it's really important to notice here for your own personal walk with Jesus and your discipling of others. Notice here how John the Baptist calls out specific sins. He's not general. He's not like, quit your sinning, y'all. Quit being bad, start doing good. He's not, he's not going generalities here. He is doing soul surgery on each individual person. He knows what their particular temptation is and how they've given in in particular ways that they sin. And he's calling them to repent of specific sins. He calls out specific sins. This is where I would encourage you in your own own discipleship, your following of Jesus, encourage you to not just be general about your sins. Mm -hmm. Confess specific sins specifically. Do that both privately and with other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. 
in appropriate relationships. Your pastor can help you think through what that would look like. But so so John helps me to keep following Jesus. He and a guy named Ben. Those are my two guys. There's another guy named Chris who helps me too. But those are my two main guys. They know everything about me. They know my sins. They know my specific sins. And they know they know about my impatience with my children. They know about times that I've been uh, apathetic and disinterested at home. They know about lust. They know about greed. They know about desire for affirmation or fear of man. They know specifically about what those sins look like in my life, how I've struggled with them, and they've helped apply gospel grace to me in those. I think it's a really important part of being a Christian is having honesty before the Lord about specific sins like John the Baptist is calling people to do right here. This is the way you prepare for the Lord. Okay? In your discipling of one another, I don't, it doesn't matter what your cultural background is. None of us like shame. None of us like it. That's why we hide our sin. But Satan wants us to hide our sin. You've got to be in the light. John the Baptist is calling people to come out of the darkness into the light through specific confession and repentance of sin. Well, lots that could be said here. Said here. He's going to be his his ministry is going to be much like the Holy Spirit's. He's going to say, "Jesus must increase, I must decrease." That's in the Gospel of John. He's mightier than I. Can't even um, tie his sandal. Well, verse twenty. This is going to end up bad for John. Um, Herod um, locked up John in prison. So John had called Herod out for specific sin, and it had gotten him locked up. Eventually it's going to get him beheaded. So this is going to cost John his life, his ministry here as a forerunner of of Christ. We see that in Luke chapter 9 where he'll he'll lose his, his head over this. So that's John the Baptist, the forerunner who's proclaiming the Son. Repent of specific sins in preparation for the Messiah. He's coming. Anybody have any questions about John the Baptist here and his role and what he's doing? I I have to breeze over some of this stuff. Obviously, there's so many things we can go deeper in here, but I want you to watch just how the flow works as we're we're going through this book. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. With regard to baptism, it says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance from the forgiveness of sins. Um, I guess my question is about what were the people's understanding of what baptism was about prior to that? I think I had read somewhere that there was proselyte baptism practiced. Um, So someone who was becoming a Jew, a proselyte, would go through that. So I'm trying to understand what would have been the people's understanding about what's happening in this rite. That's good. So my understanding is that that's, that's probably true. What I've, what, my, what I've always understood, I wrote something on this in seminary, and this is how useful it was that I don't remember it. Um, but I remember that going up to the temple, there's washing that needs to be done, and it's this, it's this cleansing with water. Oftentimes, it in getting down in, cleansing your body, is a, it's a symbol of, of, of washing from sin. The water itself doesn't actually wash you. It's faith and the conscience toward God, but there's this symbolic thing, and I, I don't know everything. Like, there's not tons written about it, um, but evidently it was something that would have been well-known enough for John the Baptist to be doing it. So, I don't know if there was proselyte baptism. Um, there would have been an identification with Israel's God. Sounds sounds logical. I'd have to look it up, to be honest with you. I didn't see it 
um, anything I was reading recently. I'd have to dig up my paper from seminary. That's a good question. So, good. Anybody else want to ask something I don't know? Cleansing and immersing into the water for cleansing, that's a tradition that our Muslims follow now. When you're unclean, you have to completely immerse, cover yourself in the water. And I believe that came from a Jewish tradition when you touch something unclean or where there was something unclean about you, that that's one way to clean yourself. And that's why I believe that's where the water baptism comes from. Yeah. That's what I've always assumed. Sure. So, you know, obviously Islam started much later, you know, um, than, than Christianity. So um, you've, you've got, um, it, they may be copying Christian baptism in that picture. They may be copying um, Judaism's washings. I'm uncertain. I'd have to, I'd have to do more, more research on that. But certainly the, the cleansing is, it, it is part of, of the rituals of, of many religions like that. Um, so I don't think that would have been unique to Israel per se, but God certainly required it of His people. So, that's last one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so in in uh, John's answer back to the people who was who were questioning his whether he was a Christ, mm-hmm. he says, "I baptize you with Which water." Which verse are you at? Um, sorry, this is uh, verse sixteen. Yep. So verse sixteen says, "I baptize you with water." The one who's coming, uh, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. So, would that? I mean, that would be. Uh, I mean, obviously, we see that later in, in Acts, mm-hmm. uh, but that would be regarding the covenant, the new covenant, mm-hmm. rather than something different. Yep. So John the Baptist baptism. That's why when you see in Acts, somebody has the baptism of John. They need to. They need to. They need to go forward and have be baptized in Jesus's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because Jesus' baptism is into the new covenant, which the Holy Spirit seals one until the day of redemption. So yeah, very good. All right. Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. So this is where we're going to see the, the affirmation of the Son from the Father. First here in these two verses, we're going to see his baptism. Then we'll mention a few things about the genealogy. So 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptizing too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Good. A couple things to note here. First of all, as we see, um, Jesus himself is baptized. Now, why wasn't Jesus baptized? Tell me the reason. Tell me a reason he wasn't baptized. Without sin. Right. So this was not because he needed to repent of some kind of sin. Right. So then, why would Jesus be baptized? In Matthew, he says, "Is to fulfill all righteousness." What does that mean? Identification. He's identifying himself with the promised forerunner and his message as ordained by the Father. So a righteous Jew of the day would have aligned with John the Baptist's message of the coming king. Exactly right. So he's aligning with this message. I'm with John the Baptist in this. That's why John the Baptist is like, really? He's like, you should be baptizing me. He's like, no, just trust me. Um, so he's, he's getting baptized because he's identifying with this movement that the Father has initiated through John the Baptist of entering into Messiah. He's like, this John the Baptist ministry is about me. And he joins in that. And now after this, John the Baptist isn't going to be um, baptizing people into his baptism anymore, but rather he's going to be calling people to go and to follow after Jesus. Okay. Um, second thing to notice here, um, do you notice the Trinity? 
Yeah. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the present. The Father is speaking, affirming the Son. The Son is being baptized and empowered by the Holy Spirit who descends from heaven. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here present at this moment. Uh, this is not the only time that you see this, but um, this is a unique moment where, um, where God Almighty, the Holy Trinity, is present here um, at this beginning of the ministry of, of Jesus. One other thing I think is important to note. You notice what the Father says about the Son here? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father affirms the Son before all people. This is why elsewhere, it's really clear in the Gospel of John, 1 John, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. There's not many ways to God. There's one way, and it's through His Son, the one who from heaven, He's going to say, uh, you're my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And then later on at the transfiguration, He's going to say, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. That's the fulfillment of the, the Moses prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So this, this Jesus is unique. He's set apart by the Father. He is the way that the Father provides for sinners to be saved. You know what's really good news? So I don't know where you're from or where you've been or what you've done in regards to your sins against the Lord. I want you to hear this gospel truth. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ because you've been born again and God in His mercy has united you through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you into the life of Christ, Jesus' life now becomes your life. His righteousness now clothes you. It's called justification. You're justified. You stand righteous. And what that means is now, if you are in the Son, if you are in Christ by faith, the Father, what He says about you is, Behold, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. The Father is pleased for those in those who trust in the Son. That doesn't mean that as a child you... When you disobey, it doesn't displease the Father. That's certainly true. That's why we should not grieve the Spirit. We should repent of our sin continually. But our standing before the Father is one that is pleasing because we're in the Son. Now, that's really important because Satan wants to continually remind you that you are condemned. You're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned. But the Gospel promises that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was condemned in your place. And now you stand confirmed pleasing to the Father before Him. So if you're in Jesus, these words are for you as well, because they are from the Father, for the Son, and now those who will be in Him by faith. And then we get a list of names. Now, different cultures, genealogies mean different things. In Israel, super duper important. That's why all the way through your Bible, there's... There's phone books. There's lists of names everywhere. And the reason is because what God is doing is He's tracing His faithfulness through people. He made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden that through the seed of woman would come one who would crush the serpent's head. And God is tracing His faithfulness all the way through history. And genealogies have different purposes. And different people are included for different purposes. Other people are left out for different purposes. All the different genealogies have different aims, there, but they're intentionally used to highlight specific things. 
So one thing that you would notice if you study the Gospels is that Matthew and Luke's um, genealogies that are included have similarities, but they also have distinct differences. Um, Matthew's genealogy, so it begins the Gospel, right? Um, Because Matthew's Gospel is written to whom? To the Jews. So if you're going to talk about Messiah, first thing you've got to get right is what? Abraham. He's got to be from Abraham, and then he's got to be from David. David. So that's why he starts off, because the Jews aren't even going to listen to anything about Messiah if this guy's not from Abraham, not from David. We've got, we got to see the proof. Show me, show me the papers. Okay? So he starts off with, here's your papers. All right? He's highlighting that fact. Now, with Luke, his focus is going to be different. For Luke, his emphasis through here is he's showing the Gentile audience that Jesus associates with humanity as a son of Adam. Not just of Abraham, but all the way back to the son of Adam, who's a son of God. So his a so there's I encourage you to spend some time researching it. I read multiple different articles and things about it. It's mildly confusing as to all the different takes on who's in the genealogies, who's out, all that kind of stuff. It's worth your time. We're not going to spend much more on it here. Um, but I think the main emphasis here is that um, Luke Luke's genealogy, genealogy highlights God's organization of history to bring a descendant from Adam all the way to this moment so that he could be brought into the world through this virgin, escaping the curse of Adam, to be the better Adam, the one who we now can look to for uh, salvation, both of Jews and Gentiles. It comes through Jesus himself. So that's the emphasis here. Luke's emphasis is focused uh, he's showing the Gentile audience that Jesus associates with humanity as a son of Adam. Um, and theologically, he's going to be the, the better Adam. Okay? Which I think is proven in the next scene. Because what we're going to see next is we're going to see the adversary is tempting the son. And what are we going to, we're going to try and figure out, is Jesus going to do what Adam did? Or is Jesus going to do what Adam didn't do? We hope he does what Adam didn't do. Okay, we we will this because everything really hinges on this. Because if Satan can get Jesus to disqualify himself, then there's no there's no salvation, right? So this is Satan's aim here. Now, one other thing, I'm just going to give you this note: Why is the temptation order different than in Matthew? So if you read this, you're going to notice the first temptation is the same, but then the second and third are switched. Now, some people say it's because there were multiple temptations. Um, that this happened multiple times. I just don't think that's the case. Um, I mentioned earlier that Luke is less interested in the Matthew in chronological order. And he he feels the freedom in the way that he's writing his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to move things around thematically. So you'll even see that in the order of some of the events that happen later. He'll put it like way later um, because of what's happening. So it seems to me that these... Temptations are ordered by Luke in increasing relevance to Gentile audience. He's going to start with hunger, then he's going to move to to raw power, and then he's going to move to fame and renown. It's like he's stacking the temptations on building up the climax to okay, Jesus can handle the bread thing. Oh, but but can he? You know, can he can he then handle uh, this this 
this opportunity for power, but, but, but what about renown? How's he going to do that? Um, that's been a suggestion that I, I found I found fairly convincing. Um, again, this is one of those things I encourage you if that's interesting to you to read up on it. Um, I think there's I think it doesn't um, remove any validity of, of, of the truth of it at all. But all right, let's look at this um, verse one. Let me read chapter four, verse one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Huh. So, and then verse 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they ended, he became hungry. He became hungry. So notice here, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who had just come upon him. First thing the Holy Spirit, notice here, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. This is a divine appointment. The Holy Spirit is leading the Son of God out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's out there for 40 days. Now when you think of 40 days in the wilderness, what comes to mind? Yeah, Israel was out there for how long? 40 years. And why were they out there? Because they were disobedient. But Jesus is out there, and we're going to find out, will he be obedient, right? Israel didn't listen to the law and did what they wanted to do. Will Jesus obey the law and do what he's supposed to do? That's what we're supposed to be wondering. Well, the way we're going to watch this unfold is there's three temptations here. Um... The first is verses 3 and 4. So somebody read this first temptation here. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, and Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Good. What is Satan's temptation here? What's, what's, he, what's he trying to get Jesus to do? This is, by the way, studying this will be helpful for you. Paul tells us not to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. So the devil doesn't just come and kind of throw something at you. He knows who he's coming after and why he comes after them the way he comes after them. So just as we should confess sin specifically, we should fight sin specifically as well, knowing that Satan has specific schemes that he's always working What's he trying to get Jesus to do here? So we're going to see that. Right, so he wants to prove he's the Son of God. Right, so are you really? Huh? Right, good. Hold on to that. Put that one up there. Good. What's the heart of this one? I think he wants Jesus to obey his body rather than God. Good. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. I think Satan here is tempting Jesus to lay aside his dependence upon God and the discomfort that comes with relying upon God. And using His own power to provide relief for Himself. <coughs> I think He's trying to get Jesus to, to say, I'm not going to depend on the difficult way of the Father, but I'm going to use my own power, if you're really the Son of God, you can do this, in order to provide relief. Have you ever been in a situation where your body wanted something? But you knew that you it wasn't for you at this time. Or maybe never supposed to be for you. And Satan's tempting you, oh, just give in. Right? Rather than taking the hard way of obedience and denying yourself. 
Well, this is exactly what Jesus faced here. So, how does Jesus reply? What's he do? He quotes scripture, right? He fights fire with fire. Satan breaks, so a temptation, you know what a temptation is? Temptation is a promise. It's a promise from Satan that says, true satisfaction and true joy is going to come by you rejecting God's rule over you and you following what feels good to you. You follow the easier way. It's a promise that it's going to be worth it. It's going to be better if you do this. But God's promise is, no, no, no. There's something else that's true that puts that down. So he fights fire with fire here. And what is what does he quotes? He quotes there Deuteronomy 8.3 and says what? Man shall not live by bread alone. Yeah. Man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? So Israel daily ate manna by faith. Well, trusting God here, um, he's going to, to eat upon God's word by faith. And he is going to he's going to resist. Jesus knew that he wouldn't die in the wilderness because the Father had something for him to do. He knew he wouldn't die, so he resisted. So he resists the temptation of the flesh. That's number one. All right, temptation number two. Somebody read verses five through eight here. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. (coughs) What's Satan tempting Jesus to do here? Yeah, again, to take, take the easy road here, right? He's tempting him to bend a knee and submit to his headship, again, rather than the difficult way prescribed by the Father. He's offering Jesus, what's the classic thing here? Shortcut. Well, a shortcut, yeah. <laughs> He's offering Jesus the crown without the what? Cross. Without the cross. I'm, I'm going to give you a way that's going to be easier than what the Father asked you to do. The Father's prescribed a cross for you and then a crown? How about this? If you just reject his headship over you, and you bend in need of me... I'm going to give you the easy way out. I'm going to give you the crown, and you won't even have to go to the cross. Does that sound familiar? And he quotes there Deuteronomy 6.13, which is where Moses warned the people about the temptation that they're going to face when they go into the promised land. When they go into the promised land, what did he say there's going to be a temptation that's going to be there? You're You're going to find... Wells that you did not dig, and houses that you did not build, and vineyards that you did not plant. And the temptation is going to be to what? Forget the Lord your God. And Jesus here quotes and says, no, no, no. We will not forget the Lord our God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. No matter what you offer me. So Jesus here resists the temptation of the eyes. Temptation of the flesh, temptation of the eyes. And now verses 9 through 12. Somebody read that. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands 
so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Make the note there that Satan quotes Scripture too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because everybody who uses Scripture to make a point doesn't mean that they're from God. TBN. (laughs) Keep going. Jesus answered and said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Mm -hmm. So, temptation number three here. What's, what's Satan trying to get Jesus to do here? Hmm? Trap him. I'm sorry, one more time. Trap, trap him. Trap him. He's trying to trap him by how? What's he, what's he want him to do? Using scriptures, he's trying to overshine. Yeah, so certainly he's getting real sneaky now. He's going to start, oh, you like the Bible? I know some Bible. Yeah, I'll quote some Bible at you. Yeah, good. So he's going to try and trap Jesus there by outwitting him. Thankfully, Jesus knows scripture better than Satan. Good. Um... You want him to submit to him in, in a way. True. Yes. Yeah, so again, there's there's some of that. He's calling Jesus to do something. Jump to jump. Because if he jumps, he says, if you're really the Son of God and you jump off of here, and then he quotes some scripture saying, God's not going to let what happen. He's saying, he's saying, if you jump off there because you're really the Son of God, God can't let you die. What's He going to do? He's going to have to send angels to come and rescue you and everybody will see it. What He's calling Him to do is to not humbly wait for the Father's hand of exaltation through the resurrection. But rather, go ahead and jump off now and be exalted in front of everybody in your own timing. Don't wait for the Father's timing for exaltation. But prove yourself to be the Son of God by jumping off and everybody will see and you won't even have to wait for the exaltation that will come through the resurrection and the ascension. Exalt yourself is what he's saying. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes there Deuteronomy 6.16 which refers back to Exodus 17 where Israel grumbled against God because he was not caring for them in the timing or the way that they desired. And they sinfully asked, is the Lord among us or not? You remember that from Exodus 17? Whenever they're not, God's not showing up. They're in an unplanned place at an unplanned pace. And they're like, is God with us or not? And what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is ask that same question. Is God really with you? Are you really the Son of God? Prove it. Says, don't, don't put God to the test. God's timing is better. He is wise. He knows all things. Now, something that I want to point out to you here. Keep your finger in Luke and hang a right to 1 John. Some of you may have already made this observation. This is a... Uh, I don't think that this is by chance that Satan tempted Jesus in these ways. 1 John chapter 2. Somebody read for us verses 15 and 16. Love, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, so the, the lust, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Do not love these things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Don't lust, don't love those things, because they're from the world. I'm not sure if you noticed or not, but those are the three things that Jesus was tempted with. You hungry? The lust of the flesh. Right? 
Hey, look at all this. It can all be yours if you just bow and knee to me. The lust of the eyes. Prove yourself to be the Son of God. Exalt yourself. The pride of life. He comes at him with those three things. Which you know what? Keep your fingers back in Luke. Hook it all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've seen this before. One of the things you're going to notice about Satan is that he is not creative. He basically has old faithful that he uses all the time. He just dresses it up a little differently. It's those three things all the time. Genesis chapter 3. This is Satan comes to the woman, tells her that actually evil is a good thing. God says, you don't want to know evil. And Satan says, oh, you want to know evil. God says, you don't want to know evil. You don't want to know ISIS. You don't, know, you don't want to know children's cancer wards. You don't want to know kidnappings. You don't want to know torture. You, you don't want to know about adultery. You don't want to know about broken hearts. You don't want to know about slander. You don't want to know about gossip. You don't want to know about backstabbing. You don't want to know, you don't want to know evil. And Satan comes and says, oh, come on. He's holding out on you. Evil is actually good. God knows God knows if you eat of this, you'll know what he knows. See, Satan always paints evil as good. It's one of his tricks. Well, anyway, verse 6. Somebody read verse 6 for us. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, saw the lust of the eyes, and it was a delight to the eyes. I'm sorry, it was the lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, and? And that the... And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. I can be wise like God. Pride. She took from from it fruits and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and with her he ate. Yeah, where was Adam? Yeah, see, on all the pictures it shows Adam over there grilling out. He's chilling, fixing a car, doing something way over there. It's the woman who did it. Mm-mm. Adam is right there with her. Subjugate, not, not, not doing his role of protecting the woman. She's not doing her role of being the helper to the man. They're sinning against God and one another. But Satan uses those three things, <coughs> which all of us are tempted with all the time, which Jesus resists. And he now proves that he is the better Adam. He didn't do what Adam did do. And he didn't do what all of us do. He instead is going to be a perfect substitute who's going to be able to go to the cross and die for the sins that we give into, which he would not give into. How many of you have seen that before, with those, those parallels there? A couple of you. I think, that's, I think it's a helpful way to think, think about it. Jesus is the better Adam, okay, which he had just traced back to in the genealogy. Anybody have any questions now before I... Um, give another one of the themes that we see um, and then we're going to move into our last last little bit. Anybody have any questions about what we saw there, the temptation, or the genealogy or JTB? Yeah, I had one. I'm just trying to... Yeah, see, in verse 6, chapter, uh, chapter 4, 4 verse 6, uh, the devil says... Um, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. Do you think Adam handed that to... Well, I think God gave it to him. 
podcast. So he's been made the God of this world. Okay. Is what he's he's called in Second Corinthians. Yeah. Uh, the God, God of this of world is yeah. blind. Mm-hmm. The minds of unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter two. He's the Prince of the power of the air. Mm-hmm. Something happened at the fall where God gives authority to Satan in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Now he could be lying through his teeth here. Who knew what he actually had a power to do? Yeah. I, I don't. I don't know all the inner workings there, but he does have authority that's given by God because of the fall, um, in which he evidently can, can yeah. give to some things in such a way that it blinds them. Yeah. That's a good question. That's scary. Just think about that. Think about how many in this city that love money. Satan might just be giving them money so they would never see the need for a savior. Mm. Mm. Uh, we all have our, our things that blind us, though, so we should be slow to, to judge and quick to check our own hearts. But remember, Satan is crafty. Any other questions there? All right, so this next theme that I want us to think about for just a moment here is Luke's emphasis on prayer. One of, the, one of the other big themes that you see flowing through the Gospel of Luke is that of prayer. Um, Jesus models for his disciples uh, prayerfulness uh, very often. Let's, uh, who can get 321 for us? Just put your hand up if you can get it. 321? So basically, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read out a verse. You're going to read it out loud. I'm going to give them all out right now. And I'm just, I'm just going to want to hear us. We're just going to read these and see it. So who can do 321 for us? All right, good. 516. All right, good. 612. Great. 918. Got it, good. 928 through 29. Thank you. Um, 11, 1 through 13. Got it. Um, 21, 34 through 36. Got it. And then um, 22, 39 through 46. Thank you. All right, good. Let's go. All right. Uh, 321. Um, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. Notice before his baptism, he's praying to the Father. All right. 516. But he would withdraw to his desperate places and pray. Huh. So Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, would stop and go away and pray in quiet place by himself. Good. Keep going. 612. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. So that's before he selects his disciples. He goes up and he asks the Father for wisdom. Good. 918. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them... Who do the crowd say that I am? Huh. So notice Jesus is off praying by himself and the disciples are just watching him. They're just there. All right, keep going. 9, uh, 28 and 29. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Good. So the transfiguration. Notice Jesus is up on the mountain again. And notice he takes his disciples to pray. Mm-hmm. This, by the way, is just the mark of a Christian that they take others and they go pray. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples to do all the time. Draw away and pray together. Draw away and pray together. Draw away and pray together. I think it's interesting that in a book where the humble and the lowly 
are such there's such a strong emphasis that prayer is so strongly emphasized as well. I think those two go together. 11, 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Hmm. And then uh, verse, uh, eh, skip that. Go down to verse 9. He's going to tell him to pray stuff. Um, read 9 down through 13. And I tell you, ask and to be given to you, say that you will find. Now, let it be open to you. For everyone who asks will say, and the one who says, finds. And those who will not, it will be open. Those are, by the way, in, in um, a present tense. It's to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing posture of prayer. Then keep going. What mother among you, if his son asks for a fish, would instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, would he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know what to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit this is a really important part for your prayer life. Notice here. Jesus wants to reassure you that the Father answers in a loving way. So if you ask for a fish, He will not give you a serpent. Doesn't mean He's always going to give you a fish. But it does mean He won't give you a serpent. And if you ask Him for an egg... It doesn't mean you're always going to get an egg, but it does mean you won't get a what? Scorpion. Scorpion. What that means is, if you, who are evil, he says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father? Brothers and sisters, I just want to reassure you of this, that when you pray, the Father hears and he answers in the way that is best. Sometimes it's best for you to have a fish when you pray for it, but sometimes it's not. And the Father knows how to give good gifts to His children. And what you can bank on is this. He will not give you a serpent. He will not give you something evil because He's good. You've got to know that when you pray. 21, uh, 34 through 36. But wash yourselves, let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and fears of this life. And that thing come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come to you, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Praying that you may have strength to escape. Notice we pray for strength, Jesus instructs. And then finally, 22, 39 through 46. And he came up and proceeded as, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And, he, and his sweat 
became black like drops of blood, falling down upon the, upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice here, Jesus is being tempted to take his own will in his own hands. And he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And he models for the disciples here, in this moment, you've got to know that prayer is your refuge in the midst of great temptation. Even up to his dying hour, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. So here's my question for you. What do you think it is that actually, why don't we pray? Because I think when we read this, I, now some of y'all may just be like, that sounds just like my life. I'm always praying. Maybe you are, I hope so. Pray for the rest of us to pray more. I, I've, I've never really met somebody, though, who said, I think I pray enough. Um, what is it you think that hinders us from being prayerful as the Lord models and as He commands? What, what is it that hinders us? Right. How, why? What did you say pride? I, I mean, I don't disagree. What do you mean? Because prayer in itself is, is, is depending on God. Yeah. And so if, if you're exalted, you can, you're saying to yourself, or convincing yourself that you can do it by yourself. So that's, you don't need God to do that for you. Yeah. Now, I think, I think you're 100% right. I'm not sure I think that. I don't, I mean, I, I think you're right. Pride is the reason I don't pray. I think practically that's true. I don't know that I've ever thought, you know what, I actually don't need God today. I'm going to be fine. I think that's what I'm saying through my not practicing it. So I want, I'm pushing on this a little bit because I think that's true, but I don't think that's what goes through our minds. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you, for me, that's not, I'm not, that's not what's going through my mind. I'm not normally thinking, I don't actually need God for this. I'm showing that by my practice. What what is what's actually going on in our minds that hinders us from praying? We don't trust His will. We we have this always this question: What if God will do what I don't like or I don't want? There is this this tension between my will and His will, and that's why I will not be sub I will not submit in prayer consciously because uh, sometimes I want my way, not His. Okay, so maybe there's a fear that He's actually going to give me a scorpion. Yeah. So it's not scorpion. Yeah. So the, the, but so it's maybe fear. So that might be something that would be good. Lord, help me to see where I'm actually thinking you're cruel. You know, I, I don't know what y'all's. I don't know what y'all are like because I don't know you super well, really at all, actually. But um, in our congregation, I think our people trust that God is sovereign and that He's powerful. I think a lot of us really struggle to believe he's good, though. I think we know that answer. And I think we could point out reasons we think he's good. I don't know if all of us really grab that he is good and he does good. I, I wonder how much that hinders our, our prayerfulness. I think tied to the pride thing might also be sobriety. I think we lack sobriety a lot of times. Now, there's moments when things happen. Like, so, yesterday? I guess I don't know what day it is. Recently, I was 
get ready to pull out. I looked to the left and didn't look back to the right, and a guy rode in front of me on his bike, and I almost, I almost killed him. And I tell you what, the next five minutes of my driving were the most sober driving that I've really ever had in my life, watching out for anything that might happen. I, I don't know that we have that kind of sobriety about heaven and hell and eternity and the moment that Jesus could, I mean, he could come right now. So sobriety, I think, or lack thereof oftentimes would hinder us from prayer. I think even sometimes uh, yeah. uh, we take God for granted. Mm-hmm. We don't uh, think that it's necessary to thank him over simple things, over mm-hmm. a meal or a ride, or just that it's okay. Yeah. yeah, just even a forgetfulness or an assumption. Of course he's good. That's what he's going to do. He's God. Yeah. Thanks, God. I would encourage you guys to talk about this amongst yourselves. If you came with somebody else, I'd encourage you to say, okay, let's, let's press in on that a little bit more. Talk about the pride, about the sobriety, about whether he's good or not, about, you know, do we take him for granted, or, or different things like that that may have come up. I think this would be a good conversation for you to press in on and ask God to be changing your hearts on. Pray for, for my heart to be changed as well. Okay, so it's 9, 6, 17. Do you guys need another break, or do you want me to just keep pressing through? Where are you all at? I know it's late. This guy says, that's press. I was So Dave says press. For all adults here, if you need the restroom, or water, or apple, or whatever you need, get up. That's fine. If you need to leave, I'm not offended. We're going to press on. You're doing great. Yes. Is this one question? One more question. Uh, Luke 11. Luke 11. Uh, yeah. So, the last uh, verse in that particular passage, uh, verse 13. Yeah. So, he says... Um, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So, I mean, is that a direct reference to what the disciples were? They were seeking the Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit like Jesus had. Yeah, because Jesus is bringing the new covenant to bear. Part of the new covenant is that he, you, I mean, you get the Holy Spirit who yeah. seals you into the covenant. So it's, we're trusting this Father to do good things. We're, we're, we're looking to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who's going to usher us into this new covenant. Father, give us this Holy Spirit. So it's it's almost a prayer for belief um, in that, in that sense. But I think it's a it's a trusting posture that the Father is going to through the Son give the Holy Spirit, and then we can trust Him to do good to us. So yeah. So I don't think it's limited to only giving us the Holy Spirit. But I think if we can pray that He would give us fruit of the Holy Spirit um, as well. So it's either get it because you don't got it, or keep well not keep it because it's keep you, but produce fruit because you have it. Uh, I mean, specifically for the in, the, in context of the past uh, itself, mm-hmm. were the disciples seeking the miraculous signs of the? I mean, the the power of the spirit in terms of how Jesus will operate. Well, Jesus was going to give them authority. We'll see some of that um, whenever we get to the discipling section. Okay. That Jesus does he gives authority to his disciples and sends them out with some of that. Okay. So they were they were operating in the power of the spirit in that sense. Okay. Um, though there's 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 the weird time where like Jesus is with them and he's giving them the Holy Spirit and you know and then he comes and acts too officially. So yeah. there's there's some weirdness in regards to like okay. yeah. categories and all that kind of stuff that I don't know. But it's all the ushering in, though, of the kingdom under the new covenant. Good. All right. Chapter 4. 
You can do it, sis. Amen. Oh, man, I'm dying. Hey, Sorry. I'm, I'm with you. I know. I, I'm, not, I'm not even a little bit offended. It's all right. John sleeps through all my sermons. Um, <laughs> in chapter Luke 4, 414. All right, here we go. 414 through 950. Now, after Jesus' temptation, the next thing that happens chronologically would be his Judea, Judean ministry, which is recorded for us in John 1.19 through 4.23. So John 1.19 through 4.23, if you're looking for like chronological what happens, you'd stick that section in here. So after the temptation, he goes off and does his Judean ministry. Then he comes back to do the Galilean ministry. Okay, So Luke just picks it up with the Galilean ministry. Okay, why? I don't know. Wes can read that. Um, but in chapter 4, verse uh, 14, somebody read uh, verses 14 and 15 for us. Hang in there. Come on. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit. The news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Good. So he's teaching synagogues. You remember synagogues are not places where sacrifices were offered. They're simply basically like outposts where the Bible or the, the Torah would be read, the prophets would be read, they'd be explained, uh, there'd be prayers and all that kind of stuff, but there weren't sacrifices that were, were offered there. Okay. Um, well, Jesus goes into Nazareth, which is his hometown. hometown. He goes home base, right? Goes back home. And um, mentions where he had been brought up there in verse 16. And it's on a Sabbath. And he is going to read the section of the prophets that day. And he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And to set liberty to those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, this is the ultimate mic drop. All right? Somebody read verses 20 and 21. Jesus mic drops it. Here we go. And he ruled up the school and you back to the attendant and sat down. <laughs> and the eyes of all, the, all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, Jesus said, I fulfill that. That's me. Everybody's like, Really? And they, they become amazed by this guy. He's claiming to be the Spirit anointed one. The prophet of God, the Messiah, fulfilled. And, um, well, it just doesn't go well from there. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to warn them that if mercy isn't received, it will be removed and shown elsewhere. Verse 25, he says, Truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years six months, and great famine came on the earth. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Why? Because they were disobedient in that day. So who did God send Elijah to? A Gentile. Yeah, a Gentile. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. Why? Because Israel was being unfaithful. So what did God do? Gentile. He went to a Gentile, Naaman the Syrian. Dun, dun, dun. When they heard these things, the synagogue was filled with <laughs> wrath. They get angry. Rather than be humbled, they get hostile. You're going to start to notice this. Stuff's about to get hot around Jesus here. He is going to start making everybody mad, basically. And he, because he is going to be putting light into the darkness. 
He's saying, I've fulfilled this. And if you want this mercy, don't do what Israel did in the past. Because if you do what Israel did in the past, mercy is going to be removed from you and is going to be shown to somebody else. And rather than saying, oh Lord, let that not be us, and bow a knee, they say, roar. Don't talk to us like that. Who do you think you are? And they chase him out of town. It's only a sign of things to come here. And this is one of the things you're going to notice as Jesus goes through. There's going to be people who love him and people who hate him. And what he is doing is he is just, he is calling out his people. And the ones who love him are going to come to him. And he is not thrown off course by those who do not love him. Now he'll mourn over them and all these things and some eventually will end up turning. But Jesus is calling his people to himself. Now, chapter 4, verse 31, all the way through 611, Jesus is going to be working miracles here. And that's not all that's happening. This was kind of one of those sections that was a little difficult to try and figure out exactly how to to break things up. Um, But you're going to notice that Jesus is going to be healing people here. Somebody read for us verses 31 and 32. This is really important. And he came down Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Jesus' words come with authority. Meaning he's not quoting a bunch of, uh, you know, Mishnah says, and like he's not, he's not playing the games of, you know, so-and-so rabbi, you know, Rabbi Billy Bob says this and this. He's not quoting rabbis. He's just saying truth. He's speaking as if he's God Almighty. He's speaking with authority. Now what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to prove that he has authority to say the things that he's saying by working some miracles. The miracles are going to be done to prove that he has, his words aren't just authority, but they they really have authority. He is the one who has the right to say the things that he has said. Now, um, Man, for summary's sake, we're just gonna we're gonna you're gonna be dissatisfied. We're gonna blow through this. Okay, so Jesus, he is going to cast out some demons here in verses 33 through 37. Then verse 48, he does the ultimate miracle and heals a mother-in-law. Um, so Peter Peter's married and he heals the mother-in-law. She was sick. She got up and she began to serve, which is a great picture of how someone who is touched by Jesus should respond. They should raise and serve him. Then, uh, in 40 through 41, demons recognize who he is. You are the Son of God, verse 41. Mm. So the demons recognize him, but Israel won't. Um, But he tells them to shut up because he won't have demons doing his evangelism for him. Then, in verse 42, when it was the day he departed, went to a desolate place, and the people sought him, and he came to him, and he kept them from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. So, this is, if you write in your Bible, this is one of those lines, this is one of those verses to underline. Or if you don't, you make note, hey, this is an important verse. Jesus was sent for this purpose to preach the good news of. The kingdom of God. There's good news. The kingdom of God has come. <coughs> Just in case you're wondering, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven a lot. And he uses kingdom of God here. I think they're synonymous. It's just the same thing. So, 
What is the kingdom of God? Jesus is preaching this. The kingdom of God is here. Which is what? What does that mean? We've seen it already back in chapter 1. Rule of heaven. The rule of heaven. So salvation, rule of heaven. Let's put these together. Entry into the kingdom. How? Repentance. The good news is that heaven's will will be done on earth. How's that going to happen? Well, you need to repent and be saved by trusting in Christ so that the rule of heaven is, on the rule of heaven is done. Where? In you. You should be the place where the kingdom of God is seen. How? By submitting your will to the will of heaven. What does that look like? Jesus. He is the incarnation, as it were, of what it looks like to have the will submitted to the Father in all things. And He is going to die, and He's going to rise, and He is going to be the Lord of glory, and we are to, to trust in Him. Jesus is proclaiming that good news. He is omission from the Father, and that's, that's what He's doing. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verses 1-11, through 11, He calls Peter, James, and John. Uh, I'm not sure if it's ever been weird to you when you see they're out there and he says, follow me, and they're like, drop their nets, and they're like, yes, Lord, and they go off, and it's just like a trance. Um, that's how it always, I've read that, and I was like, man, that's a weird deal. Jesus just give them like the, the Messiah eye, or what did he do? How did they know? Um, you have to remember that this is not the first time that they've seen Jesus. Back in John chapter 1, you had the Judean ministry beforehand. Do you remember chapter 1 at the end? You've got the disciples... Um, have heard through the ministry of John the Baptist, the Messiah's here, and Philip's going and he's getting people, and they're like, come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, come and see. You get that section at the end of John chapter 1. They had encountered Jesus before. So when then Jesus comes back and says, hey, you looking for some fish? Drop your net over there. And they're like, all right, we've been here all day. Yes, Lord. And they throw it over there and they're like, wow, fish. He's like, you think that's something? Come with me. I'm going to show you how to do that for people. And they drop their net, they come in, drop their nets, and they go with him. Because they had encountered with him before. So this is not some kind of just like spooky thing that happens. They, this is like, wow, he really is who he says he is. He's proving his authority through his miracles, and it's changing and convincing hearts. Okay. So they left everything, verse 11, and followed him. Um, chapter tw- uh, 5, verse 12, all the way down through 6, 11. Jesus is healing people. He heals a leper. He heals a lame man. He heals a man with a withered hand. Mm. Now, why does He do these miracles? Really important. Chapter 5, verse 20 through 26. Let's read this. We're going to hear it from Jesus' mouth why He does miracles. He is not trying to start a circus. He is doing something else. Somebody read for us, 20 through 26. And we saw that faith, He said, man... Your sins are forgiven you. So when he saw their faith, the people who la- layered the, uh, lowered the paralytic down through the, the mm. ceiling. Keep going. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, so the Pharisees are on to something here. Only God can forgive sins, and this guy just said he forgives somebody's sins? What's he claiming to be? Keep going. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, ah, which only God does, get it? Yeah, I keep going. He answered them, "Why do you question your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk?" But and here that, it is. Watch this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man paralyzed, "I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home." But that you may know. You see that? 
This is why Jesus says He does the miracles. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Remember, Son of Man is not just a fun term that Jesus likes for Himself. This is from, this is from Daniel chapter 7. Where this is a, there's one like a Son of Man who all authority is given to from the Father. Um, and He will judge all people. This is that one. Okay? And immediately He rose up before them and picked up uh, what He had been lying on. He went home. And what's He doing? Happens again, doesn't it? Glorifying God. Joy. This is what happens when someone encounters Jesus. And amazement sees them all, and they glorify God, and we're filled with awe. We have seen extraordinary things today. That's why Jesus does miracles. And it's, it's results in either joy or... Uh-oh. Chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Look at another reaction to a miracle done on Sabbath. And then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about uh, upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the whole place went bonkers and praised Jesus because he was God in the flesh. Is that what it says? They were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to him. Oh, what? What is sh- They should have said, this must be the promised Messiah. Isaiah 35 is happening right in front of our face. Everything the Messiah was supposed to do, he's coming and he's doing it. But no, they don't like it. This guy's not following our rules. This guy's not under our authority. This guy's threatening our power. This guy's going to get some of our followers, which is going to get some of our money, which is going to get some of our power, which is going to, you can see, they don't, they don't love Jesus and res- respond with joy because they love something else. They love themselves and the glory and the power and the authority that they have. Jesus is going to put these kinds of people down and he's going to rescue the humble ones who will look to him and say, we need nothing here. We want you. All right, chapter 6, verse 12. Um, somebody read just uh, verse uh, 12 and 13. It was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also appointed as apostles. Good. So these are, the, are going to be the 12. So you notice there's going to be disciples. Out of those disciples, he's going to call 12 to be apostles. This is important to note. All apostles are disciples. Not all disciples are apostles. There's an important distinction. So apostles are people who are personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ as apostles in this office. All of them are disciples. A disciple is simply a follower. We'll talk about that more. Um, but these are, um, these are ones who are commissioned as, um, as apostles. Now, chapter 6, verse 17, all the way through 49, is what you might call the Sermon on the Plain. Alright, so this is not the Sermon on the Mount, but this is the Sermon on the Plain. So you'll notice, he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast, Tyre, and Sidon. Now, some people think, oh, look, the Bible contradicts itself because the Sermon on the Mount sure sounds a whole lot different than this. Well, it does sound a whole lot different than this, even though it sounds a whole lot like it, too. Because why? 
to the it's two to different the scenes. Yeah, it's two different times. One of the things you need to remember about Jesus, he was an itinerant preacher. Mm. So he uses some of the same stuff more than once. John and I were talking about this on the plane over because he had heard the first two sermons of Luke and I told him, I was like, I'm kind of apprehensive to say some of the same things I said in my sermon because you're going to hear it. I know you're the only one in the room who's heard it. Uh, and he's like, Jesus did that. It's okay. It's like, that's a good point. So I was free to do that. But Jesus does this. He's an itinerant preacher. So we see him not preaching the Sermon on the Mount here, but now preaching the Sermon on the Plain, which has a lot of the same themes, but it has some new themes as well. I'm just going to point out three things whenever you read through the Sermon on the Plain that might be interesting to you. 20 down through 26, you can just see how they all start. Mm. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mm. The great reversal is going to happen. This is what Jesus is going to talk about. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. It doesn't mean all poor are blessed, and it doesn't mean all rich are cursed. He is generalizing... um, What's going on in the world? And we've been talking about this already. So um, there's going to be the great uh, reversal that's going to come. Where the lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be put down. Second thing to notice. Some often misunderstood verses. Let's look at verse 37. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it should be measured back to you. Now, verse 38 there, how do you normally hear that verse used? You're going to sow a seed today, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you put it in, you push it down, you put another seed on top, and then what's going to happen to you? Oh, it's coming back. It's coming back big time in your lap, and you're going to get a Mercedes, and you're going to be happy, and... Somebody's going to make a bunch of money. That's, that's how this is often heard. That if you invest your money in this ministry and you give and you give sacrificially, it's going to come back to you tenfold. Alright? That's not what this verse is about. What's he saying? What's going to be repaid to you? If you're gracious to other people out of a heart of faith, what's going to happen to you? You're going to receive grace. If you're merciful to others out of a heart of faith, what's going to happen to you? Mercy is going to be given to you. If you extend forgiveness to others out of a heart of faith, what's going to happen? Forgiveness is going to be given to you. You will be repaid in like manner. In this life, maybe. In the life to come, most certainly. Jesus is not teaching here about how to get rich. He's talking about how to be rich toward God. By treating others as you would do unto others, you would have them do unto you, as it were. Show mercy, compassion, forgiveness, grace. And if you do that, it will be measured back to you. This is not an earning of salvation. This is a reflection of salvation. This is what God's people do. Now, verse 39, here's another one. He also told them a parable. This is your shortest parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the answer? No. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now very often in discipling circles, that's used as a positive term. You're going to be like Jesus if you, you, know, if you, if you learn it. Which is true. But that's not what this verse is saying. What's this verse saying? Hmm? If you follow blind guides, 
You're going to be a blind... Yeah, you're going to be blind too. What's going to cause you to be blind? If you follow these blind teachers, well, what's making them blind? Verses 41 down through 42. What's making them blind? They're not seeing the big thing in their eye. They've got a log in their eye. Because they're, that makes them what? Hypocrites. Their hypocrisy is blinding them from reality. If you follow blind, hypocritical guides, you are going to become like your teacher. You're going to become a blind, hypocritical guide as well. Jesus is warning here against following the Pharisees in their blind pursuits of, of things. Which again, highly ironic. This follows right after, I mean, it's, it's almost like Benny Hinn intends to prove the Bible to be true by misusing it. So Benny Hinn's going to tell you, if you give a bunch of money to my ministry, you're going to be you know, stacked over, shaken, pouring over, you're going to get it back. But he's actually a blind guy. And he is stirring up worldliness in followers who, because they love the world, are going to follow him so they can get the very things that Benny's promising, but in turn, they're becoming all the more blind because they're following him right into a ditch. It's dangerous. So just remember, Satan can quote the Bible, and so can false teachers. This is why it's always important to read context here. Jesus is giving a warning here um, about following the right guide. Finally, verse 33, just a, uh, verse 33, when I say verse 33, I mean the third thing, verse 46. Um, notice here he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Mm. I just couldn't get past that when I read that. Mm. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The true mark of a disciple is what? Obedience. 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 Loving obedience, following Jesus. I encourage you to be meditating on that just a little bit over the next couple of days and ask him if there's any way that you might not be doing what he says despite our professions of loving. Well, that's the Sermon on the Plain. Then chapter 7, 1 through 8, 56. Again, an unsatisfying overview. 7, 1 through 10, you get the centurion's healing. Oh, is that the one I love? Oh, it's so good. Hold on, here we go. Um, verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, saying, what do they say? Yeah, he's worthy for you to do this for him. So they they think that they're going to impress Jesus by telling him this guy's worthy of him doing something for him. Well, verse 5. For he loves our nation, he's one who's built our synagogue, Jesus when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. What's his estimation of himself? He's not, he not reading you know, news clippings. He doesn't believe what everybody's saying about him. He knows himself. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume uh, to come to you. But, watch this, say the word and let my servant be healed. For... I, too, am a man sent under authority. So he's a centurion. He's over a hundred men. He's under the authority of another, right? With soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes, and do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now, what was Jesus marveling at? What did this guy get? Faith. 
What what faith in what? What did he? What did this guy recognize about Jesus? Yes, he says, "I too am one under authority." He recognizes that Jesus is under the authority of whom? God. This centurion, this Gentile centurion, gets Jesus is from the Father. You don't even need to come in here. You can say the word from out there. And Jesus is like, oh, anybody see this guy? He got it. He got it. He knows he's not worthy. He knows who Jesus is. Those two things seem to go together. And the Lord says, this guy has figured it out. And he heals his daughter. It's a great story. You should read it more later. He heals a widow in 7, 11 through 17, 7 through 18 through 25. John the Baptist is all confused because he's in jail. He's like, hey, did we miss it? What's going on? Jesus explains, actually, he's Elijah. He doesn't even know that. Um, then chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, a sinful woman gets forgiven much. Oh, I wish we could read that, but we can't. So read that one tonight before you go to bed. It's a wonderful picture of he who loves much, or who's forgiven much, loves much. Great story. Chapter 8, verse 1, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God in parables and miracles. Um, he's showing he's going to be sovereign over storms, demons. Uh, he's going to ha- uh, heal Jairus' daughter, the woman with blood. And then in chapter 9, so again, these are just he's working these miracles as he's going through Galilee. He's doing his ministry here. Then chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Somebody read chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 for us. Then he called those twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over the devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Good. Now I'm a Baptist, so I see two Ps here. Okay? Um, what two letter, what two words do you see? Power. You got power. Authority. authority. That starts with a P. I need a P. And proclaim. Proclaim. Or preach. Yeah, you got preaching and you got power, right? So he gives both of these to his disciples. The disciples are going to be going out and to be proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he is giving them authority or power in order to prove that this message is to come about. So he gives them both. They go out and they are doing some healing. They come back. um, When do they come back? They come back eventually. Here in just a minute, they come back. Uh, yep, they come back, verse 10. They, on their return, he told them all they'd done. Then, you got the feeding of the 5,000. Mm. Then Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Mm. Uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And then we have the Messianic mystery. Somebody read verses 21 through 22. This is a strange reply from Jesus after Peter, he gets it. He nails it. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. And you'd think Jesus would be like, that's exactly right. Tell everybody. But instead, it's my 21 and 22. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on hmm. the third day. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What a puzzling statement. Now, um, yeah, so first of all, this is the first of three times that he's clearly going to foretell his death. This is number one. Number two is down there in verse uh, 43 through 45. He's going to foretell his death the second time. And then the third one is later. Somewhere much later. I'll point it out tomorrow. 19... 
I don't know where it is. I'm sorry. Um, so he's going to do this. Now, why would Jesus say, don't tell anybody? Why do you think? He's on mission. He is on mission. Good. To do what? To die. To die. And if everybody goes and tells him, hey, you are the Christ, what are they going to be expecting from him? To be the king, which he is. But what kind of king? Yeah, to kick the Romans in the face king who's going to get them out of the way and then set up his, you can put down um, Caesar, down goes Caesar, up goes Christ. That's what they're expecting right there, which happens, but not the way they expect it because Jesus came to rule where first? Their heart, not in their city. He's going to rule in the city someday, but right now he's come to die to be a suffering servant. So here what we see is we see the Son of Man, the ruler, the Lord, but also the suffering servant. So we Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53 put together in a way that's just nobody's understanding. That Jesus is going to put it forth to his disciples and say, I'm the Son of Man and the suffering servant at the same time. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, there's lots of discussion on what Jesus is saying there. I encourage you to read read on it if you'd like. Then we have the transfiguration. Um, you notice I'm skipping 23 through 27. That's on discipling. Tomorrow evening we're going to start with uh, the theme that we're not going to have time to get to tonight, which is discipling. So we'll just pick it up there with discipleship, which will actually help us because it'll be a good springboard into the next section. Um, but we've got the transfiguration here. Jesus is on the, um, he goes up here on the mount with his three guys, Peter, James, and John. Those were the three who were closest to him. Moses and Elijah are there because why? Who do they represent? The law, Moses, and the prophets. The law and the prophets are there, right? And then who else is there? Jesus. Jesus is there. And then who else is there besides the disciples? Father. God the Father, very good. God the Father's there. And what does he say? Verse uh, 35. Listen to him. This, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. alone. Why? Who goes away? Alone. The alone. law and the prophets. Has he abolished them? Fulfilled. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, not to abolish them, but to he's fulfilled them. The Father says, listen to him. He's the one that the law and the prophets look forward to. He is the one. Listen to him. Well, Jesus then heals some demons. No, he never does that. He heals a boy who has a demon, okay? Sorry, it's jet lagging and it's about to happen. Uh, so this is when heresy starts flying. So David, he did just uh, just do that. Um, he foretells his death again here in verse forty-four. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Let these words sink in. Well. After Jesus says, I'm about to die, the most logical thing that you could argue about would be what? When? I mean, who's the greatest, right? Yeah? Like, 
Who's the greatest? Let's argue about that on the heels of Jesus talking about his suffering and death. Somebody read for us verse 46 down through 50. (coughs) An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Okay, so let's just stop there for just a moment. Notice here, Jesus, once again, what does he know? He knows what they're thinking. So he's, and evidently, he's not right there with them. He just sees them arguing, and he, just, he knows about, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Well, God over here knows what they're thinking. He comes over and he says, guys, let me show you something. You see this little child? One like this. One who's weak, one who needs help, one who needs assistance, one who can't figure it out in themselves. You've got to be like this one. You receive one like this, then you're going to receive it. You guys are missing it. You guys are looking to climb the ladder. You're just like the world. No. Follow my example, which is going to be to be humble and lowly, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Well, John answered, verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the Presbyterians are not that wrong, only wrong on some things. I'm a Baptist, I have to do that. Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Yes, Jesus, like the disciples here, and this is, this is really, I think, an important lesson in our day. Jesus says, if they're not against you, they're for you. They're proclaiming my name. They may not be running in your crew, but you know what? If they're not against you, they're for you. So don't, don't beat one another up. Love one another. Okay? So I think it's a good word for us in, in our day. It's easy for us to get in our little tribes and our little crews and to point fingers at other people and be like, oh, they're wrong on this and wrong on that. And you know what? We're all wrong on this and that, okay? Um, and I think a humble posture toward one another is, is really, really important. Now, that does not mean that we should be cowardly on sin. There are things that are wrong, and there are times to divide and to call people out. There's times for that. But there's also a lot of times to be charitable and to be gracious and to assume one another means the best and to have open conversations with one another rather than you know, should we call that fire or try and stop them? Well, that brings us to the end of section three. And um, t- tomorrow evening, we're going to start with uh, the discipleship stuff, and then we're going to move into the, the fourth section. So I'm miraculously not behind where I thought I'd be by very much. So that, that's a miracle in and of itself. So thankful for that. We have uh, just we have five minutes. I've never finished early for anything, so we should take this time for any questions that you might have about anything we've seen so far, so I can at least milk this for all it's worth. Uh, not, you can go home early, that's fine. Yes, sir. Just a question about the, the fact that we talked about at the beginning. Luke emphasizes the fact that he did his research to do this uh, writing. Mm-hmm. My question is that why would Holy Spirit inspire him to do a research? After reading Matthew and Mark to do this work, is that to complete what was left there, or is it just? Good. I think um, this is this is speculation. 
So the Holy Spirit did not tell me this. I don't know. Uh, it appears to me that we still have, I mean, 31% of Luke's gospel is unique to him. I think, I think he, as he said in the beginning, many have undertaken to write this and that. Um, but I think he wanted a more detailed account. So he, he wanted to get more information. And the Holy Spirit used him to give us the longest gospel that we have with more information about Jesus than we would have had if he'd not given it. So I think there's just another, there's another window in here to more teaching, more emphasis that we just would have missed if we'd only had Matthew, Mark, and John. I guess my question was, was the Holy Spirit inspiring him so to bring forth that 30% that was missing? And was that something that he recognized and kind of brought it up to the Lord, use this for your glory? Exactly how the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the writings of authors mingling with their own unique personalities, experiences, and all that kind of stuff is a bit of a mystery. It would seem to me that as he's doing all of his research, much like when I'm writing a sermon, I would say my sermons are not so good. But whenever I'm doing a sermon, there's things that I'm including that I think help make the main point clearly. And as I'm praying about this, the, the Spirit seems to give wisdom of things to cut out and to leave out uh, and things to include and put in. And I would just say that in some sense, in a, in a, much, yeah, in a, in a different sense, but same kind of idea, the Spirit likely moved there um, in Luke's preparation to know which things to include and which things not to I mean, John says at the end of his gospel that if we'd have written everything that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. So the Holy Spirit led these authors to be selective for main things that they're trying to hit for their prospective audiences. So it's a great question. Whenever we get to heaven and you find Luke, say, hold on, Garrett wants to know the answer to this question too. And I'd love to hear it. That'd be awesome. So. All right, so last thing, I want to know maybe one or two things that were really helpful for you tonight. Something that you're like, I think this will help me to follow Jesus better because I heard this tonight. Or something that challenged you. Um, this is one of the ways by I encourage you whenever you're doing your devotional in the morning or evening or whenever you do it, to find something that you hold on to and you walk with throughout the day rather than just being like, oh, got it done. But like grab something. So anybody have something? Yes, sir. Yeah. The will that's done on heaven, done on earth, and what's done in heaven, be done on earth. Mm. It's, 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 a fine, it's, it's a fantastic thought yeah. that we are operating uh, under heaven's command, yes. even though we are walking on yes. this earth. That's great. We are walking under heaven's command on earth because we are in Christ. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, kingdom of God on earth. Yep. Yeah, lots of, lots of good stuff. Just on Luke one or four words were specifically convicting uh, for me when you said confess specific mm-hmm. sins specifically. Just an area of application for my own heart. I think sometimes I'm intentionally too vague yeah. um, with my confession, just with others. So as a pastor of the church, of a church, I want to make sure that I'm walking with the Lord and finding sin well. Yeah. I shepherd God's people. So it was really convicting for, for my own heart as I consider how best to follow Christ and fight sin well. So thanks thanks for sweet applications like that just throughout your teaching. Really helpful. Anybody else? Great. Well, I encourage you to be meditating on some of that stuff for the rest of the evening. And uh, may God bless you. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to go still early. (laughs) Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that you would help us to adore the Lord Jesus all the more. 
might you give us the perspective of heaven that we might see uh, what the angels see, that we might uh, delight in Jesus um, rightly and fully and without reservation. God, might you mark us to be a people who are humble and lowly um, in posture of spirit as evidenced through prayer. God, would you, would you mark us to be a holy, um, a holy group of disciples? Might you give us grace between now and uh, our next time together? Help us, um, yeah, to proclaim the name of Jesus. We pray that uh, hearts would be revealed, both our own and others, and that you would uh, you'd minister in the midst of it. We pray that it is just the same.